Well, we are in a series on the Gospel of Luke, and this week we come to chapter 8 and a really small section about Jesus, the Twelve, and a few named women, though there was more than just the named women in this passage, who are traveling around Galilee with Jesus. So our passage is Luke 8. We're going to read just the first three verses. Let me read for us. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go again to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, I give you thanks for the celebration of July 4th that we do have coming up and what a, a good reminder it is of where you have placed us to live. I love being in America and I wouldn't want to live anywhere else even as it is clear that our, our country is deeply sinful and in need of the gospel. So I pray that even as we're going to see in this passage today, that you would continue to rise up your church, to raise up your church, excuse me, and to build into us that we might be salt and light among our countrymen, that they may come to know Jesus just as we have come to know him, and they might have life forever in him. We pray all of this in Christ's name, who is the King of King and Lord of Lords, and who rules over every nation and every place. Amen. Now, we read in verse 1 that after Jesus' meal in Simon the Pharisee's home, that was the end of chapter 7 that we looked at last week, where Jesus' feet were anointed by a, I guess what we could call a notorious woman who did this as a response of gratitude to Jesus' preaching and the forgiveness of her sins. And I, I did not mention this last week, but it seems appropriate to me that a forgiven woman, almost like a symbolic Eve, would anoint the feet of the Messiah, who would soon crush the head of the serpent. And Jesus then moved, after this event, then moved throughout Galilee, everywhere from really larger cities to small villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. So. As you read there in verse 1, he's pretty much doing what he had been doing for the last several chapters, even as the amount of people traveling with him, well, they're growing. And alongside him, learning and listening are the 12 apostles who have been set apart to be his official witnesses. This is why they're just referred to as the 12. It's kind of a technical term uh, by this point. And as they will come to find out throughout his ministry, it's going to be through their preaching and teaching about him as the Messiah, that Jesus will actually build his church. And this is still true to this day. But it's not an all-male road trip around Galilee. There are many women disciples following Jesus too, some of which have been healed of demons and various diseases. And Luke specifically mentions uh, Mary Magdalene, who had been possessed by seven demons, uh, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, who is Herod's household manager, and then third, he mentions Susanna. And this is the single mention of Susanna in the gospel, which implies that surely she must have been known uh, in the church at large at that point. Though Mary Magdalene and, and Joanna will show back up in chapter 24 at the resurrection of Jesus. 
Now, these women's inclusion shows that, that the gospel was permeating through really all classes, men and women together, but reaching all the way to, to Herod's household. So every economic class as well. Even so, unlike the 12, Mary Magdalene and Joanna are among the women who are first at Jesus' tomb at his resurrection, indicating that they had faithfully followed Jesus throughout his whole ministry all the way to his grave. And they report the empty tomb to the remaining 11 disciples, though the 11 did not initially believe them. That said, there were more women than these following Jesus. And Luke tells us that it is from the gifts of these women disciples that Jesus, his work was financially supported. So if you ever wondered how were they eating and how were they making it, here's the answer through these women and their faithful giving to this ministry. And some readers are, are perhaps surprised to find that Jesus not only had female disciples, never you mind that every woman in our church is a disciple, but that they followed Jesus everywhere alongside the 12, and in turn, they, they financially enabled his ministry. So, like the parable of the pearl of great Price, these women are giving generously in response to the proclamation of the kingdom of God and thus are active participants in Christ's kingdom. And by the way, this is how churches financially function to this day. Churches are not media companies that sell services or entertainment. And I'm certainly not a CEO or a content creator coming up with new programs or exciting new rollouts or whatever. Praise God. What we see in this passage is, is what actually we do ourselves, and it's based on what the church has always done. The work of the church is supported by the gift of God's people, both financially but also with the service of time and energy, in response to God's gift of life in his Son. And that work is centered on, like we see in the early part of Acts, the teaching about Jesus and the breaking of bread, or as we typically say, Word and sacrament, that continues to be the center of the church's life together, just as it was for the apostles. Now, with those basic details in place, uh, this, this short scene, I think, is showing how the kingdom of God was actually coming into the world. So this is not just a quick triptych. This is not just a kind of filler scene getting us between two different teachings of Jesus. But rather, this, this is a picture, a quick picture, but a picture all the less, that the kingdom is in this mustard seed stage, almost like a baby in the womb, and it contains everything that will come to fruition in the book of Acts, and that, in fact, we enjoy even in this church. And in order to see this, I think we need to read this passage in conversation with the whole rest of the Bible, in particular the other Gospels, but also the book of Isaiah, which figures hugely in, in understanding who Jesus is. So I'm going to invite you right now, buckle up a little bit. We're getting ready to do uh, what theologians would call uh, some biblical theology. So if you read the passage more carefully than I have already done, if you look at it, the action centers on Jesus traveling throughout Galilee, also known as Galilee of the Gentiles, uh, proclaiming and bringing two separate things, 
the good news of the kingdom of God, and alongside him, of course, are the 12 and these women. And when Luke says Jesus was proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, it means he was teaching and preaching just like we've seen him do in previous passages. It's like his sermon at Nazareth where he riffed off of Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 29. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, those of you who have been here the last several months, you know the reason we keep coming back to this passage, and we do it almost every Sunday, is because it lays out what Jesus was going to do in his ministry. It's his first sermon he preaches. And it's, it's the basis or the, really the framework of what Jesus was preaching and teaching. And people like the 12 and, and the women in our passage, they're responding to it. Now, when Luke says Jesus was bringing as opposed to proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, like when he told the synagogue in Nazareth, this passage is fulfilled. That means it's coming true. It's been completed in your hearing. It means he was actually healing, casting out demons, raising people from the dead, and having table fellowship with people previously alienated from God. So he didn't just say, I proclaim. I give you a word about liberty. He actually gave people real liberty, like the woman whose sins he forgave in last week's passage. That woman really was cut loose from the bondage of sin over her life. Now, did that mean she no longer would struggle with sin? Of course not. Of course not. No, it means that that sin no longer was definitive of her life. Sin no longer held her in chains and kept her from God. And what Luke wants us to see is that the kingdom of God was actually breaking into the world right then and there through Jesus, both through the proclamation or the preaching of this kingdom and through bringing that kingdom to bear. But what does that mean? Well, I have Tim Mackey's recent work to thank for for helping us think through this in kind of a richer, I think, biblical thematic sense. So again, I'm going to invite you, stay with me. Stay with me. We're getting ready to do some work. All right, so if you consider Matthew 5 from the Sermon on the Mount, in which Jesus describes what his disciples, that is those who belong to him, what they are like, and and this is very similar to the Sermon on the Plains that we've already covered in Luke. So this is fairly early in Jesus's ministry. Here's what he says. These will be very familiar words to you. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So typically when Christians think about that that famous teaching, you are the light of the world, you are the salt of the earth, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, we typically understand Jesus to mean that his disciples are to be different from the world. And as his followers, we are to listen to his voice and walk in his ways and in turn 
our lives will proclaim the reality of his kingdom, or as some people reduce it to, be a good person. That's what it is to be a light of the world. And of course, there's, there's actually something to that, and it's in some ways no different from what Yahweh did with Israel at Mount Sinai after the Exodus with the giving of the Ten Commandments and the law and the tabernacle and all that. But it's significant for Jesus to say, you, plural, are the light of the world, and you, plural, are a city on a hill, which means this teaching does not assume our typical individualist ethical behavior, but the corporate life together of God's people. So if we read that in conversation with the prologue of John's gospel, who does John say is the light of the world, the light shining in the darkness? It is Jesus himself. But here in Matthew, Jesus makes the move to say that because you, plural, have life in me, you are my disciples. By consequence, you too are now the light of the world. Now stay with me. If you backtrack to Matthew 2, so three chapters before we get to the Sermon on the Mount, at Jesus' birth there is a great star that appears in the sky. And starting with Genesis 1, Stars in the Bible often are symbols of both spiritual powers, like, say, angels, but also political power. That's why our flag rightly has 50 stars on it, representing the 50 states, the 50 powers of America. So it makes sense that at Jesus' birth, a great star, a light shining in the darkness, would be shining in the heavens, announcing to the world both in heaven and on earth, powers and principalities, that the King of kings and Lord of lords has been born. Now, a smaller, more localized version of this happens with the angels announcing the birth of the Messiah to shepherds in Luke. So those smaller lights, those smaller powers announcing to shepherds that their king has come. Matthew 2 is basically reporting on the fulfillment of Isaiah 60. Stay with me. Stay with me. Isaiah 60 is a prophecy of the future restoration of Israel and the glory of Zion, the city of God. Isaiah 60 says things like, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. The light is shining in the darkness on Israel. But the nations also, as Isaiah 60 says, come bringing gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord, which of course is exactly what we see the Magi do in Matthew 2. The Magi come from the places where Israel had been exiled from the land, places like Babylon or Persia. And the star, as the Magi follow it, initially settled over Jerusalem, the city of David, and the Magi go there to Herod the Edomite and false king of the Jews, looking for the promised true king of Judah announced by his star. But the star does not stay put. It moves and stops over Bethlehem, the ancestral town of David. And Bethlehem, as the scribes tell Herod, is where the Messiah was to be born. Now, the star itself is not merely a way of moving the Magi around. 
Its movement signifies that Israel's real political power will not be located in Jerusalem or the temple itself, but outside of it, practically out in the wilderness, where eventually we will find John the Baptist preaching, prepare the way of the Lord. And what's fascinating about Isaiah 60 is that its focus is on a coming city. It's on a coming city, which John in the book of Revelation describes as the new Jerusalem, working right off of Isaiah 60. It is a city of peace whose gates are never closed, where the formerly hostile nations, like what Isaiah 25 anticipates, stream to the city of God to worship him. The future city of Isaiah 60 would be called the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. And, this, and in this city, there would be no need for the sun or the moon, because God himself, quote, would be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Okay, stay with me. Go back to Matthew 5 and the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus claims to be the fulfillment of Isaiah 60, and in turn, his people are this city. Jesus, who is the light of the world and the glory of God, the light shining in the darkness, is his people's glory. And in turn, like Moses coming out of the glory cloud on Mount Sinai, Jesus makes his people to shimmer, to be glorified by his glory, to be a light to the world too. So in other words, when Jesus says you are the light to the world, a city on a hill, he means you are the promised city of God founded on me, whose light is me. It's why Paul says his citizenship is in heaven. Now, he doesn't mean he's trying to escape the world. It means that he recognizes, one, that the true king is ruling from the right hand of God the Father in heaven over all things in heaven and on earth right now, and thus his star was set in the heavens announcing to the spiritual and the political realm that his king had shown up and two, that his kingdom is already entering into the world through these little communities in his name that are, by implication, the first fruits of the city of God, Zion itself. So the radical claim that is made here in Luke, and it's made all the way through the New Testament, I'm not saying anything that Paul doesn't say or the book of Revelation doesn't say, is that the city of God is already here but not yet fully here. And you see it in this little band of people following Jesus around Galilee, centered on his proclaiming and bringing the kingdom of God into the world. And 2,000 years later, here we are. It's still happening in little gatherings like ours. And what the world sees as folly and foolishness, Jesus is the real king of this world, let alone the heavens and earth, and, and this is his glorious city? Are you serious? God sees it differently. And like he promises in Ephesians 5, he is sanctifying his bride, his holy city, to be without spot or wrinkle. But what about those details about the 12 and, and those specific women? I, I just basically highlighted proclaim and bringing. What about the details about those men 
and those women. Well, I think what is in view is the restoration of Israel, and that's what we've been talking about, with the 12 apostles representing the 12 tribes. Most Christians recognize that's what's going on by setting apart the 12. And included within that is, again, the seed of the kingdom and how the city of God is centered on worship of Jesus and how he has restored his people as Adam and Eve were intended to be to proclaim and bring his kingdom to bear on the world, all through the world. And again, let me encourage you, stay with me for a minute. If you begin with Genesis 1 through 3, God creates the heavenly throne room first, which is the model for the garden that he plants in Eden. And in turn, God puts Adam into that garden. And the pattern of creation is always on earth as it is in heaven. That's not merely a phrase for the Lord's prayer. That's the pattern set in Genesis 1, on earth as it is set in heaven. So what happens in heavenly worship, for example, is the pattern for our earthly worship. And in our relationship to God, worship comes first, not work. Worship comes first, which is another way of saying our relationship to God is foundational to all our other relationship. It's why the pattern of new creation begins with worship and rest, and only then is followed by work. Sunday is the first day, and we begin with worship and rest. It's good that you're here. I hope you get a nap today. And as you go out through your week, then you are prepared to work. Just as Adam and Eve were intended to worship first in the garden, then go out and have dominion over the earth. It's why, for example, after the Exodus, one of the very first things God establishes after he has entered into marriage, essentially with Israel, is proper worship of him, complete with a symbolic Eden in the form of the tabernacle. So like with Adam going out from the garden in obedience to the command to have dominion over the earth, unless Israel is in proper relational worship to God, she will never be able to take the promised land. And guess what happens early on? That's why they're in the wilderness for 40 years. So in Luke 8, what's happening with the 12, and we haven't heard about them since chapter 6, is that they are learning. They're not doing anything. They're just following. They're listening. They're observing. They are learning at the feet of the master like what was intended with Adam. They are listening and learning his word for their future roles in proclaiming and bringing the gospel of the kingdom. And you see that happen almost immediately in the book of Acts. Jesus then throughout his ministry is training these men to be really in many ways the reestablishment of the priesthood of Adam who was given the authority of the word in Genesis 2. When you look at Genesis 2, if you just follow it closely and just follow its ordering of what actually happens, the prohibition against eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was given to Adam alone. It was only given to him because he was the only human there was at that time. He was given the ministry of the word. And clearly, after Eve was created, Adam taught her this word from God, and she herself obviously spoke with God too. But still, the role of ministering the word in the sanctuary, which is where the fall happens, by the way, the role of ministering the word in the sanctuary was given specifically to Adam. This is why the priesthood of Israel was set apart as all male. 
It was a redo on what Adam forfeited in the garden. And clearly, though, Aaron and his sons quickly repeated the sins of Adam, too. But it's why in 1 Timothy, a letter written by Paul to Timothy, a young pastor, Paul deals almost entirely with proper church order in that book. And in the midst of all that, that ordering, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. That's his reasoning. That's his reasoning. And the reason Paul says this is because of Genesis 2 and 3. Adam was created first and given the ministry of the word in the sanctuary of the garden. In 1 Timothy, Paul is specifically addressing corporate bodily worship in the churchly sanctuary, like what we are doing right now, and he assumes Genesis 2 and 3 are foundational for understanding proper, you would say liturgical, or worship roles. And again, it's why the priesthood of Israel was an all-male priesthood, and why Jesus set apart 12 men, and it's why up until really, what, 120, 130 years ago, it was accepted across all of Christianity, in all its diversity, that the pastorate is set apart for qualified males. Qualified males. The pastorate is not for all men. It's just not. But rather for qualified men only. And Paul, in turn, gives Timothy the qualifications of that role. You can just go read it. Now, does that mean that a woman can never teach a man anything? Or that a woman can never be a boss? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Some of my best teachers in my ministerial training, even at the seminary level, have been women. And some of the best bosses I've ever had have been women. And if I cannot learn from my wife, who, by the way, is the primary person in my life who calls out my sin, and I mean that in a good sense. If I cannot listen to her taking seriously Proverbs 31, I've got a real problem because Paul's not saying any of that. No, Paul is specifically, specifically addressing when the body of Christ comes together for worship in the sanctuary, and he's not giving a general principle for all of life. So with Jesus and the kingdom of God on the move in Galilee, we already see the responsibility in the role of, of, proclaiming, the kingdom of, of proclaiming the kingdom that Adam forfeited, being restored to the liturgical life of his people through the 12. And like Paul says in Ephesians 5, husbands, like pastors, or in this case the 12, learn what it means to lead through watching and mimicking the true Adam, Jesus himself. It's why on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, Jesus addresses really two rogue disciples who were leaving Jerusalem. They're not supposed to be leaving Jerusalem. They're not obeying his word. And he addresses them by teaching them that all of scripture was about him. So he decides to have a Bible study with them on the road. And then by breaking bread with them, that is word and sacrament, and only then were their eyes open and they returned to Jerusalem where they were supposed to be. In turn, what we see with the apostles is a life dedicated to studying and preaching the word, prayer, and the breaking of bread with God's people. But we also see the restoration of Eve to her liturgical life with God too. To put our passage really in Jewish cultural context at this time, and this was not part of the law, but was rather a feature of later Judaism. In the temple in Jerusalem at this time, in Jesus' day, women had a separate court that was outside of the court of Israel. And the court of Israel was for men only, which is telling. 
right? And of course, outside of that, the Gentiles were kept even farther outside the temple in their own separate court, which was known as the court of the Gentiles. So the social hierarchy of the temple began at the lowest level with Gentiles who had the least access to God. This is not Solomon's temple. This is Herod's temple, right? They had the least access to God, then women, then men, then the priesthood, then the high priest who had access to the Holy of Holies once a year. And these distinctions on where someone could go or not go within the temple were rigorously, I mean rigorously, policed, upwards to the death penalty at times. In fact, Paul nearly died over an accusation that he had brought a Gentile into the court of Israel. But clearly, Jesus did not hold to these non-biblical hierarchical distinctions, and it's why Jesus was not put off by the woman washing his feet with her tears, or the Samaritan woman at the well in John, or here with the inclusion of women within the twelve as his disciples who equally enjoyed his full presence, just as Adam and Eve enjoyed God's full presence in the garden. That's why we are not segregated in any manner whatsoever by sex or anything else in this sanctuary. We are all disciples here. And the only sort of distinction that we find here is that I am set apart to serve and lead in the worship. So I'm basically the Levite here. I'm here for good order. In particular with the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments. And the elders in turn are set apart to assist me in this work of leadership. So my calling is to guard and keep the sanctuary. That's why all of my work, all of my work is, is centered on word, prayer, sacraments, worship. That's the central part of what I do. And it's why today in the Lord's Supper, you will see me distribute the elements to the elders according to Christ's word and his direction, all done in his name. So it's not me, it's him. Then the elders in turn will serve you, and then I in turn serve them. That's symbolic on purpose. I hope you pay attention. So the men set apart for leadership are set apart to serve the king's people because we're stewards. We're stewards. And this is all patterned on Jesus' own teaching and practice like what you see in John 13 and Luke 22. We all here serve at the pleasure of the king, even as we are meant to keep to the order and liturgical roles established in the Garden of Eden. But again, what about the women? What about the women? Well, in Genesis 2, the first time we read about something that God had created not being good, not being good, it was man in his isolation. There was no partner, no counterpart for him in order for him to fulfill God's command to have dominion and be fruitful and multiply. And what's more, Adam was liturgically, that is worshipfully, incomplete. He could not rightly worship. And he could not rightly carry out the command to be fruitful and have dominion. So God put Adam into a death-like sleep and bodily separated Adam, making two from one flesh, and created Eve, his partner and counterpart to him. And what God separated in Adam's one flesh into two living human image bearers, he then brings together to form one flesh in the union of marriage in order to accomplish the cultural mandate together in worship. But the word used in many English translations to describe Eve as, as a helper, it's not a demeaning 
word, though that's how it's often read. And the Bible is most often used, actually, of God himself. So Eve and God are called helpers most often. And I think a better translation for us would be something along the lines of ally, deliverer. And my point is that in Jesus Christ, God has restored men and women to their proper roles in union with him. Within the city of God itself, and like we see in Proverbs 31, these women in Luke 8 are serving the Lord and helping him in his work. They are a helpmate to the Lord himself. So if the 12 are learning to proclaim the kingdom, these women, like the bride of Christ, are bringing the kingdom to bear through the Messiah. And these women are restored then to their Eve-like role within the sanctuary, and they bring their gifts for the worship of God, just as the woman in our previous passage did with her, her costly ointment. All this to say, with this, this brief snippet in Luke, you really do get a small picture, really a mustard seed, of the restoration of what was lost in the garden, particularly with the liturgical roles of men and women, which are necessary for worship in the fulfillment of Isaiah 60 in the coming Zion, the city of God, and the privilege we enjoy right now, right now of enjoying the light and glory of God in Jesus Christ. And what, and that mustard seed w- would grow throughout the book of Acts to what we find in our time is a kingdom that has come to cover the whole world, the whole world. And I think all of this is in view when it comes to the Lord's Supper, believe it or not. At the king's table, male and female alike. There's no separation by courts. Male and female alike, like Adam and Eve enjoyed for a short time in the garden, are equally invited to come dine with the Messiah, to enjoy the blessings of his table fellowship, to bask in his glory, and to have life in him. Now, no doubt... No doubt, like how the world looks on the church or this little band of people following Jesus around, Galilee and Luke Luke 8, they think, no way. If Isaiah 60 is true, no way is this happening here. How on earth is this glorious? So too do they think, no way is this the meal of the supposed king of kings and lord of lords as if he's a real guy. But for those who have eyes to see, and ears to hear, we dine with our king in his kingdom right now. We already are enjoying the foretaste, the first fruits of the city of God, and we look forward to the resurrection and life forever with him. With all that said, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for how even with just a few short verses we can meditate throughout scripture and how faithful you are how good you are and how you have not given up on humanity let alone your purposes for us we thank you for this grace and this mercy and we pray all of this in jesus name amen